Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. I'm excited to welcome Bill Hinshaw, president and CEO at Excella Therapeutics. Thanks for joining us today, Bill. Oh, it's great to be with you today. I'm, I'm excited by the topic and the vision that you have for this podcast. Being part of an innovative ecosystem is what we're all engaged with, and we need to be thinking that way. So thanks for having me today. Wonderful. Thanks for your support. So Bill, to kick us off, walk us through the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. I entered biotech about four, a little over four years ago now, joining Excella. And that act followed a long life sciences career in what the bigger pharma, right, as it's classically called, starting with sharing plow and transitioning to Novartis. And in that time, I, I started as a sales rep in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and I progressively built my career thanks to support of others and being a little bit fortunate up to leading the oncology business for sharing plow. And then I moved over to Novartis, a very different company, one that taught me a great deal, and I moved internationally. So I led a series of general management roles. I was starting Novartis with infectious disease was the scope and focus. And it was seven people. And I like to joke it was a biotech in a $100 billion market cap company because we built that seven people up into 700, you know, 17 programs. And then I had a series of general management roles there from running infectious disease and transplant to running 33 countries across Europe to running 90 countries all across the world with all nine of the businesses that Novartis had and culminating in leading their U.S. oncology business. So in that journey, I had remarkable privilege to participate in programs like Gleevec, like Kimriah Cell Therapy, like social responsibility programs like the Malaria Initiative and something called the Rogia Paravara, which means good health in the villages. And this was all part of a journey where I got to see the great key account management from OTC, you know, tendering from vaccines to the true specialization of transplant and oncology and participate in remarkable products like interferon and ribavirin for hepatitis C and again, Gleevec for many, many treatments of cancer. So all that led me to a point where I was ready to move into biotech because I wanted to continue and build my experience. I felt I had developed enough of the skill set and experiences, but there were still areas to learn. And I could contribute and really bring my experience to making sure that the phenomenal science that we have translates into access to patients around the world. Because we've been in this industry a long time, you've seen great science not achieve that. And you've seen frustrations in how development occurs or what are the market access dynamics or how did you position the product? And I wanted to look at a program and a company that had a platform that had the potential to be transformational and that could innovate in the way that we were developing products. And I personally could be able to contribute with my experience along that journey, again, to make sure that patients got the best of the science that we could bring forward. So that's what led me to biotech and this ecosystem, which is a phenomenally powerful and interesting place to be. Great, Bill. Thanks for that background. 
I'm curious when you decided to make that switch from pharma to biotech, you mentioned, you know, there were some areas where you had room for growth. What were some of those areas that you identified when you were making that switch? Well, when you're in a large company, such as the caliber and quality of Novartis, you have large teams and a lot of capabilities, and you are working with a different type of stakeholder set. All right. You still have, of course, the physicians, you have the investor community. And that's really where I was looking to gain the most experience was the financial ecosystem and the set of stakeholders there. I, of course, was a spokesperson for Novartis. I represented them. I contributed to the IR preparation, et cetera. But it is a very different sort of approach than when you're looking at a Series C or a crossover or going public and the type of investors that help stimulate the innovation in our ecosystem. So that area was an area that I wanted to grow and develop and be able to bring my experiences and skills to bear. So that I'd say that's the core focus. I had had the opportunity to lead both clinical and research teams in my journey. But you're obviously very deep in that setting in a pre-market company. So that was another area where I wanted to bring my perspective combined with my team's experience and hopefully advance and innovate in a new way. So those are the two areas I was really focused on, Rahul. Yeah, great. Thanks for the thoughtful response, Bill. I'm curious for folks that are listening that perhaps had backgrounds similar to you, as you thought about building your core team and you know complementary pieces perhaps to you what does someone that has a background like you bring to the table at an early stage biotech and i'm asking more so that folks get ideas about making that change particularly given your background well let me answer it this way you know in the biotech ecosystem and i'll use that term broadly you have remarkably talented people What you don't always have at certain stages is the experience of translating that talent, that science, that commitment into a product that ends up changing people's lives. And so that's where the larger company experience, how do you prepare and make the product available to go through the later stage clinical development? How do you ensure not only does it get approved, but reimbursed? How do you then make sure that the team that's going to be communicating that, whether that's the medical team or the sales team, is able to communicate the benefits of the product in context so the physician's able to take the choice and the informed choice? So that, along with what I would say is strategic considerations around portfolio management, what are the choices, what are the technical risk along with the clinical risk and the regulatory risk, and where are the opportunities to separate your programs in that are all real experiences that living in the life sciences industry where you are on the front line delivering that is important perspective to be able to match with people who are looking to truly innovate and to move things forward at pace. And so when you can blend that together, you don't ski ahead of yourself. You don't get ahead of your skis, if you will, and miss things that are going to be critical downstream. So that combination is where I see a lot of power and uh, what we're trying to harness at my company. Yeah, great. You know, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about single target approaches and what that landscape looks like and the evolution of that type of thinking as well as the inherent risk involved in trying to cure or treat complex diseases. So we'd love to hear your perspective on the differences between those two, just to set the stage for the conversation. 
Oh, absolutely. I, I was fortunate to be part of the team that really helped catalyze the targeted therapy revolution and precision medicine in oncology with Gleevec, as I mentioned, Affinitors, Icadia, many others, TAFMEC. And there's remarkable power in being able to identify a target and address that very specifically in a focused fashion. Unfortunately, at the same time, that doesn't translate as easily into complex diseases, as you noted. And that's part of what attracted me to Excella. That is our focus. How do we go to that next stage of addressing complex diseases where you have multiple targets, you have multiple pathways that are often dysregulated, and how do you do that when normally you're trying to bring together different single-targeted therapies, which can have drug interactions, which can have toxicity overlaps, which can just have, it, I'll say, organizational or operational complications of this company's product is at this stage, and are they open or willing or able to support combination studies? And having spent a lot of my career in oncology, transplantation, and infectious diseases, where ultimately you end up with combination therapies to be effective, either because of the dysregulations or resistance, that's what attracted me here to Excella. And our approach is specifically to tackle complex diseases with something we call EMMs or endogenous metabolic modulators. And I'll use this role just to set the stage for that, if you don't mind, because we're a flagship pioneering founded company. And what flagship orients around is truly transformational opportunities. And there's a big question at the heart of each of those companies, a what if question, what if you could? And in our case, it is what if you could restore homeostasis or health in complex diseases using endogenous molecules. And it turns out we can and we have, we in essence create combination by design. And that's what attracted me to this because it's an underserved area. It's hard to solve with single targeted therapies by themselves. And we have a chance to do that in a very leading fashion. And that was exciting. And Bill, so now let's talk a little bit about Excella. Bring us up to speed on where you are from a development perspective. And before we get into the exciting research that you recently published, would love an entree into some of the therapeutic areas that you're pursuing as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's again start with we're a flagship pioneering founded company like Moderna or others. And, and so in our case, as I mentioned, we're looking at how do we tackle complex diseases with these compositions or combinations of EMMs, which in our case are amino acids and their derivatives. Now, we're a clinical stage biotech. We have multiple phase twos underway and uh, an exciting time. So what we did is we design our compositions. Right. We're not a discovery engine that many of the companies classically are. We look and say, what are the pathways that we're trying to tackle and affect? What's the information that we can use to do that from machine learning against molecular nodal networks to our proprietary human cell lines to the world's omics data that then allow us to say, okay, these are the pathways. Then we design our composition. Sometimes it's six, sometimes it's eight, sometimes it's 10 of these constituents in specific ratios and relationships. And then we were able to go and test that directly in the most relevant setting possible. And that's people with the disease. And that's because our products are generally regarded as safe. And so that allows us to test in an incredibly innovative and efficient way. So we go directly to these patients, we test and understand the biological impacts. So that is biomarkers, clinical and functional measures along with safety and tolerability is the core. And then we are well-informed 
to move forward into our next stage of disease. So we've done that now in multiple programs where we looked at liver diseases, both with non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or NASH, as well as overt hepatic encephalopathy. And we've had programs in atrophy and other areas where we've demonstrated impact on biology, a safe and well-tolerated profile, and something that's also oral, easy to take. So that combination of multi-targeted, a good risk-benefit profile has been very exciting. And my team has done a remarkable job of executing these trials, demonstrating this, and then advancing into late-stage development. So we're in a global phase 2B with NASH. We have data coming up at the end of this quarter on that. And then we just reported out, as you said, truly compelling and leading data in long COVID fatigue the first randomized controlled study to demonstrate positive impact in a long COVID setting. And so we're compelled to move that forward very fast. And then we have a platform that's powering this. And, and we have a lot of other opportunities and ideas, Rahul, but as you're familiar with, you want to thoughtfully pursue your programs in the right stage, demonstrate the opportunity, and then scale and grow. And that's the phase we're at right now. And Bill, for those folks that are listening that are not familiar with long COVID and its implications, bring us up to speed on what that is and why you decided to pursue it. Absolutely. I think this is a really important point. Let me start with the fact that we are all tired of the pandemic, right? And its impact on how we're living and society. Unfortunately, the patients with long COVID don't have the luxury to try to move on because in essence, what happens is the virus invades the body, infects the cells it hijacks the cells to make more of the virus. Now, when it does so, a good portion of patients recover. And fortunately, unfortunately, there is a group in the best data estimates around 20 to 30% of these patients who are unable to recover. And now what's happened is the cells are under stress. Basically, the environment has become inflammatory. The cells have switched their energy source to glycolysis. And so they're trying to survive. And now that's how these patients are stuck in long COVID. And that shows up in a couple of different manifestations. There are neurocognitive or brain fog, as you've heard it referred to largely. There can be functional measures. And the most commonly reported symptom is fatigue. And Rahul, this is a profound fatigue. And that's why I started with what happens in the case of the virus invading the cells, because basically these patients their energy levels are totally depleted and they go to the grocery store, they drop their kids off, they try to be a physician and they are exhausted because they cannot recover their energy source. Now, let me put some numbers on this that are quite frightening and why when we speak to the governments and the medical communities, they're very compelled by the need here. We're approaching 600 million confirmed cases around the world and that's confirmed. Now, take the 20 to 30% and you're hundreds of millions of people around the world and 23 or more million in America who have already suffered from long COVID. So it is something that is there. Now, let me provide some unsettling additional information, then I'll pause. Nobody is immune. What we are seeing is regardless of variant, regardless of vaccination status, regardless of whether you had a, a severe case or a mild case, people are still experiencing long COVID. And so what this means is the pandemic moves into an endemic situation is that this unfortunately will continue. And that's why the medical community and the government are so compelled to do something about this because it will just be a problem on our system and for our citizens. 
And we're leading in this position due to our program and the data that we've generated. Does that help answer the and frame that up for you? Yeah, that's great. And very exciting news indeed, because I know there's been recent failures by other companies as they've pursued long COVID. So it certainly seems like exciting data. Let me speak about that data because it is compelling for us. So first and foremost, we conducted the trial with the University of Oxford, leading experts in long COVID and mitochondrial function. And what we saw were compelling clinical outcomes in a patient-reported outcome called the CFQ11, a validated tool from chronic fatigue, where we demonstrated highly statistically significant improvement in fatigue and at clinically relevant levels and change in levels of fatigue in more than 70% of the patients in the study. So truly important data on how people feel. And as you know, with your background, how people feel, function, and survive is how the regulatory path is guided. And so that data, along with supportive mechanistic work in lactate, in PCR, as well as functional measures like six-minute walk, where the people on AXA only, AXA 1125, responded, they walked further. So a functional measure as well. So this puts us in a position where we have highly exceeded what we expected from this trial in terms of the functional measures and clinical measures. And now we're eager to move this forward to help the millions and millions of patients and engage with the regulators to take that forward. So that is the data that we are so excited about. And when we've shared this with the medical experts, that clinically relevant change in level of fatigue with a profile that, again, is safe, well-tolerated, oral, easy to take, is incredibly compelling to them. And we saw that change both in physical and mental fatigue. Bill, I have a somewhat of a adjacent question, but related to this topic, especially based on indication selection. And you have a very interesting and diverse background in that now you're leading a biotech, but you obviously had previous experience on the commercial side, on the marketing side. I'm curious how you think about indication selection, given your background and perhaps frameworks that you have to decide on which indication to pursue, because certainly seems like the platform at Excella, you have the ability to potentially interrogate many, many different diseases. I appreciate that question. And and it is highly related here, actually, Raul, because what we did was bolt. We're in the beginning of a pandemic. We did have good preclinical information and clinical information on the pathways from NASH, but there was not an established pathway here. Right. We knew these were the measures we were going to go after. This was the information we were going to gather, but it was not a traditional decision. So let me pull that back up then. And yes, indeed, uh, we do have a framework that we use here where we start with the science and the pathways and the strength of evidence there. We go to the clinical pathways and understanding that you have. And in our case, because we're tackling multiple pathways, that's not always as easy to understand. We then look at the regulatory path and its characteristics and understanding and the commercial opportunity. We overlay that with strategic considerations, like what does the rest of the portfolio look like? When are the programs coming out? How big is the opportunity? How focused is the opportunity? And then you have to consider risk, technical risk, you know, your ability to deliver, how uh, I'll say the technology itself that you're looking at is well characterized and understood. So we use a portfolio review process to debate and discuss that, prioritize our approaches in context for that. And so that's what we did with long COVID. We had information coming in from the NASH program. 
we had looked at what were the pathways and biologies, like I described, endothelial dysregulation, inflammation, mitochondrial and bioenergetics. And we said, okay, these are showing up consistently. We should go test that because we can help this emerging public health crisis. And frankly, we didn't expect large companies to be in a position to do that because they're largely pursuing a single targeted approach, which is challenging in long COVID. So we're distinctly positioned as a company and as a scientific approach to help in this field. And that's one of the reasons why we're leading and ready to advance this as fast as we are. Yeah, wonderful. You touched on NASH and your NASH program. There's obviously a number of companies and initiatives (laughs) that are focusing on NASH. We'd love to hear your perspective on the challenges of drug development as it relates to NASH and also just the opportunity that it provides. Yeah, let's start with the need, right? You know, there are 40 million Americans, one in 10 American children are considered to have NASH, and it's a leading cause of transplantation and consequences to the patient and the healthcare system. So to date, while there's a lot of clinical development at play, there are no approved therapies. Now, we hope that some of the other programs will play out here and will work. Now, that gets to the challenge. It's a complex disease. You're talking about metabolic changes, inflammatory changes fibrotic changes. And again, a single targeted therapy is going to have to have a powerful enough effect to hopefully overcome those other drivers of the disease. That's where, again, we're differentiated. We're tackling all of those in an integrated fashion. We are affecting HIF-1, NF-kappa-beta, TGF-beta, AMPK, PPAR-alpha, all in an integrated way. Those are each targets of individual therapies. So our combination by design approach allows us to potentially play an important first-line role in this disease. So you have the complexity of the disease itself, then you have the regulatory path and achieving important histological and clinical outcomes in a setting which is, I will say, combined with the other comorbidities, meaning cardiovascular disease. These patients are coming in on five, seven medications. So the reality of a clinician trying to decide, can you put this patient on another therapy? They've got to weigh that risk benefit. And that's where some of the other programs, either because of the targeting or because of the risk benefit, have faced challenges to move through. We believe we're very well positioned here. We look forward to the data coming out here in the third quarter. It will be an interim analysis of our third study in this field of 24 weeks and all the -the state-of-the-art measures that will help inform us for the next steps going forward. So things that are complex and hard are complex and hard, but they have a big potential impact for patients and society. And that's why we're compelled to do this. And if you look at the balance to your portfolio management question, that's part of what we weigh. Long COVID can be in the market quite rapidly. NASH takes some time. So how do you put that together in the arc of the company was another perspective. Great. And somewhat related, obviously, to the COVID discussion, biotechs have fundamentally have had to change how they operate over the last two and a half years or so. I'm curious, and you guys have certainly done a lot since you've taken the helmet at Excella and grown and and have some exciting programs as well. I'm curious if there's anything that comes to mind that you feel is a silver lining of the pandemic that you hope lasts long after the pandemic is over? I think there's probably, uh, there's quite a few, but I'll, I'll focus in on three with distinct approaches. The collaboration and speed of the regulatory authorities with the life sciences industry was remarkable in the pandemic. And if you combine what the governments, the life sciences industries, and the medical community did, that is truly incredible. 
right? And something we should all be very proud to be part of. I do believe there are pathways, facilitation on the regulatory path that should continue. Related to that is some of the clinical operations where you have deep expertise, right? Extending the footprint of the of how you can reach more patients, how you can use technology to do site verification, patient gathering, home health, those types of things that will allow clinical trials to execute broader, faster, and to a greater degree. And then when we think about our team, how we can draw upon the talent footprint from around the country, the world, et cetera, and operate in an evolved way versus the way that we used to, which is everybody has to be in the office, everybody has to be together. There are absolute powers for being together. Innovation, I think, is strong that way. Culture is built stronger that way. Career experience and perspective. But there is also a lot of productivity and power to be built in a hybrid model, and we're fully embracing those. So those are three big themes that I would pull up, Rahul. Yeah, I certainly agree with, with all of those. All right, Bill, to wrap up here, as we like to do, given your wide set of experiences across the life sciences, knowing what you now know, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self? I wish I could provide my younger self a lot of advice, but I'll try to focus it down <laughs> in terms of one. I would say as a leader, it's being self-aware, self-aware of where your strengths are, where your gaps are, and how you not only build the team around you to be complementary, but how you facilitate the engagement of that team to really be at that high-performing level. Like I said, there's a lot more I give my younger self, but I think recognizing and realizing that and the power of the team in a complex industry like we have where no one person can achieve everything, that would be what I would focus on to get a much faster running start. Well, Bill, thanks for sharing a bit about your experience and the exciting work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Excella. Wishing you continued success as you pursue uh, some of these other programs. Uh, thank you, Rahul. Really appreciated being here and the work that you are doing and uh, look forward to continued progress at Excella and as an industry. Wonderful. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050pod. Again, that's Biotech2050pod. Until next time.